Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Why keep betting so heavy on fiat and are willing to accept government restrictions around their freedom is because uh, we have such a sick population now. The government's in cahoots with the food industry has created such a sick population that most people are worried about losing their health care because they need that more than anything. And so here in the sailing community, in the general sailing community, people all over the world are running back home to Canada to get their health care. They're running back home to the U.S. to get their health care or to U.K. or whatever because they're now dependent on that free health care 
where investing or hodling Bitcoin would certainly provide a much rosier future to that government dependence on pills, on pill pushers. But if people are, yeah, I feel like I don't tell anyone about Bitcoin. There's enough out there for people to, they can do the digging that we've done and have their own enthusiasm, see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, no, I agree with you entirely. I think that the point about food is actually a profound one. When you go carnivore and you see the impact that it has on you, honestly, like there is a point at which I think like when you, if you're dealing with somebody who's very drunk, say it's 3 a.m. and they're doing cartwheels in the middle of a living room, you, it's your friend Jim and they're doing cartwheels at 3 a.m. Now that's not really your friend Jim. You're not talking to your friend Jim. You're talking to the alcohol. And when you quit the industrial food that is predominant everywhere, you start seeing a similar pattern when talking to people. Like you talk to somebody and you think, yep, that's sugar. That personality type is sugar. And I think modern society's main personality types are sugar, corn, and soy, basically. These are the three (laughs) main uh, personality types today. There's all these complex um, personality tests that people take. I could replace them, I think, with a much easier metric, which is, are you predominantly a sugar person? I think sugar people are generally a little bit ADHD or high energy and then they crash and they're very enthusiastic and emotional and volatile. Soy is quite different. Soy is people don't eat meat and eat soy end up being quite docile and basically knocked out for the majority of the time. And then corn is really the food that just gives you these personality type of essentially obesity. I think it's the real thing that probably the real driver of obesity might be corn products. And I think it's a very significant impact on what it has on people's psyches and minds. And when you think about it, I'm finishing up the chapter on fiat food right now from the fiat standard. You'll be getting it in a few days. Like you add all of the factors that we talk about easy money and what it does to people. So it raises your time preference. It it takes away from you the ability to provide for the future and it um, forces you to start living more of a day-to-day life. You start thinking more and more about the present and less about the future. On the one hand, you have that. So that is reflected in terms of food choices. But then the flip side, so your food choices are more likely to be geared toward eating the candy that makes you feel good today rather than the healthy stuff that will make you healthy in 50 years. And then you combine that with on the other side, on the supply side, you've got government having essentially infinite money and being able to intervene in the food markets and government being motivated by the need to make inflation look low and the most important thing that people care about when it comes to inflation, the universal good that everybody has to consume is food. And so controlling the price of food or lowering the rise in the price of food is a huge objective of governments. And so that leads to an enormous amount of intervention in food markets. And the intervention goes in the direction of let's make more of the cheaper food that is uh, less likely to suffer from inflation because it can be produced industrially in massive quantities. And these things, these products are the foundation of the modern fiat diet. All the highly processed food depend on these things, essentially the industrial cropping of monocrops and then processing them into highly addictive and highly palatable junk. That's basically the economic way to hide the inflation. 
just continues to give people lower quality food. And yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. Like the impact of this has been devastating on health, but I think also devastating mentally. It's quite telling historically, wheat has generally been the food of slaves. And if you look at what has happened to humans when they moved from eating predominantly meat to eating predominantly uh, plants, as we moved to agriculture, humans became weaker, shorter, and arguably a lot of modern diseases came from that. And I think even traditional agriculture was much better because to the extent that your tradition in agriculture managed to survive the 19th and 20th century, it only managed to do it because it was being able to give people enough nutrients and that generally relied heavily on animal foods everywhere. This is in the work of Western Price. But as you move toward industrial food, you get just a much bigger level of uh, dysfunction. It's debilitating almost uh, mentally and psychologically. It can be debilitating. And it is when you're lowering people's time, when you're raising people's time preference, making them more concerned about the present, and then they're eating uh, junk that is knocking them out half the day and uh, leaving them with all kinds of health problems. It's a very different um, life than if they had hard money and savings and weren't propagandized and uh, manipulated and uh, influenced financially into eating industrial uh, junk and were eating more of the regular food. There's definitely something to that. I really think the whole Bitcoin carnivore thing is more than just a meme. People have always sought the hardest thing to produce as money, and people have always sought the biggest animal around to eat. And this is the universal human condition at all times and place. And I think it's it's the fiat century and the fiat propaganda and the fiat food policy and fiat farm policy that has normalized to people the idea that you can spend your day essentially eating industrial products and eating things that come in plastic wrappers from factories. And that's okay. And that's completely unrelated to all the dozens of strange medical conditions that uh, keep popping up, which don't worry about trying to prevent these, just figure out how to take more drugs for them. Yeah, I think there's definitely something there. I might uh, draw those attention, folks' attention to a a podcast that John Vallis did earlier this week on uh, basically regenerative cattle crops, co-ops, sorry, and foundations of Bitcoin citadels. As you say, Safe, it's almost this work in progress of these local citadels forming, and in this case, around the formation of co-ops, where the consumer and the producer become a partnership at the local level. And Bitcoin is central to the concept. So it's actually extremely optimistic. Yeah, I think regenerative farming is going to quite literally save the world. The production of this industrial food, the fiat food of the 20th century, is not just devastating for humans. It's also devastating for Earth. Like, it's astonishing for me how the stupid propaganda in the mainstream media has convinced people that cows are bad for the environment and shifting to industrial cattle feed is somehow better because that industrial cattle feed comes from pristine gardens uh, where we'd all be living in this garden of Eden all over the world if we'd all just eat beans, soy, and wheat all day. But in reality, just Google wheat farm and look at what it looks like. It's giant fields of just um, dead land. It's, It's all dead. The soil is raped essentially by growing all these giant monocrops. You kill all the biodiversity, you kill all the birds, all the rodents, all the a lot of the insects, 
and you kill small animals uh, like rabbits and deer. All that stuff is constantly being killed. Like these farms are giant, massive killing fields. And in fact, you could run the numbers on just how many animals are killed. And it's probably more animals are killed in the production of the fiat food than in the production of meat. So one cow is roughly enough to feed one person for an entire year. You could live a whole year off of one cow, more or less. So one person needs one cow. So that's one life. And it spends an entire life grazing, taken care of and protected from the evils of predators. And then in less than a second, it gets uh, killed and it doesn't feel anything. And um, then it's turned into one human's food for a year. On the other hand, if you needed to grow food for that person from monocrops, you need large areas of land and you need to clear those from all of these other animals, deers and mice and rabbits and all that has to go. All of that has to be killed. The big giant combine harvesters are constantly churning out dead animals and the pesticides and all kinds of things are constantly there. So you're killing probably more animals and you're coming up with food that's destructive to the human body and also destructive to the soil. It takes away the nutrients from the soil and in order to make it grow the next year, they need to add a lot of artificial fertilizer and they need to keep tilling the soil and adding artificial fertilizer, which is insane because cows just do that for free. It's cow farms get their soil depleted. And the way that they fix that is that they release cows to graze on it. And then when cows graze, they eat whatever little grass is left there. And then their feet till the land and then their feces fertilizes the land. And so the land gets richer. And as a result, as it gets richer, it starts having a higher productivity. So usually the the sustainable model of agriculture is that you rotate between uh, crops and and the grazing animals. Every few years, the cropping depletes the soil and then you uh, stop growing crops on that land and you bring in uh, animals to graze and you grow another piece of land. So you do this crop rotation. This is traditionally what a lot of cultures had uh, done in order to sustain their land. But now nobody does that. A few people do that. Uh, the regenerative farmers, I, I haven't listened to that interview with John Vallis but I was planning on it. These regenerative farms are doing this more and more. And I think the connection here with Bitcoin is also very important because think about it in terms of uh, a landowner. If you're a landowner and you have a low inflation or a hard money to uh, put your wealth in it, then you're able to think of the future. And so you're able to utilize your land in a way that maintains the land for the long run because you don't discount the future very highly. And so you're okay with grazing cattle and only producing a small amount of cattle on the land, which keeps the land healthy, because that's going to main, you can maintain the land healthy for 50 years with grazing cattle. But if you don't discount the future heavily, if you have a low time preference, then you care about the state of your soil and you care about the state of your land and you're more likely to have something like grazing cattle on your land. Now, when we move to an inflationary form of money and you don't have an easy way of saving for the future and the future is more uncertain, you start discounting the future more. And because you're discounting the future more, now grazing cattle and maintaining the soil for 50 years 
becomes less and less attractive. And what becomes more attractive is raping and pillaging the soil for five, six, seven years and making a lot of money. So think about it. It depends on how much you discount the future. If you have a high discount rate on the future, then the quality of your soil in 10 years doesn't really matter to you much. If you have a low discount rate on the future, then the quality of your soil in 10 years does matter to you a lot. And you're more likely to do the thing that takes care of the soil. And so if you fly over the Midwest in the US, the the entire area is just basically used for monocropping and it's essentially dead soil. So you, you add the fertilizer and you add the crops, you put the seeds in the fertilizer and then the crops come out and then they're harvested. And it, it's devastating to see just all of this land looking so dead and uniform. And to think about just how much richer it would be if you had cattle grazing everywhere. And if the people who had this land had a lower time preference, so were able to value keeping the land productive into the long run more and more, then I think you'd see the land look much better. Because today is the long run that people were sacrificing in the 1970s when industrial monocropping and agriculture was being promoted by Nixon and Earl Butts, his secretary of agriculture. They were promoting this heavy industrialization of agriculture in the 1970s in order to reduce food prices. And it came at the expense of the soil. So we're paying the cost for it right now. In order for people to have eaten cheap industrial sludge in the 1970s, we now have very depleted shitty soil. And that requires heavy fertilizer use. And that requires all of this industrial uh, production and all of this uh, genetic modification of crops that's um, leading to all these Frankenstein foods that uh, are giving people all these kinds of sicknesses. High time preference. I, 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 well, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so that's going to be the topic in Fiat Food chapter, which you're going to see in a couple of days. Safe Dean, have you ever caught a YouTube by Greg Judy? No. He's a regenerative farmer in central Missouri. I think it's called Green Acre Farms. He does a YouTube just about every day. He runs about 400 head of cattle. I probably watched way too many hours of his shows, but for 20 years, he's been perfecting rotational grazing, but not from a global warming, protect the environment perspective, but purely from a selfish financial perspective. In other words, his inputs were so costly, he just couldn't keep doing business. He was about to go broke. He had to cut inputs, so he had to figure out a way to do that. So it's all financially driven, and his conversations are financially driven. It's absolutely fascinating. He's uh, Joe Salatin is a good guy. I like watching his stuff, but he's a little more promotional, whereas Greg Judy, is. he has interns on his land, and those interns are now doing YouTubes. And it is really good. I Like I said, there's, a, there's thousands of hours out there, but some of his discussions about all of the intricacies he's had to learn over the last 20 years to perfect this rotational grazing is really interesting, especially since he doesn't have a 
political, environmental perspective. It's financial. It's really good. Yeah, it's a field that is highly interesting to me. And I really think it's no coincidence that a lot of Bitcoiners are interested in this. And it's no coincidence that a lot of fiat finance is heavily involved in the production of these shitty fiat foods. High time preference is you work, you prioritize the present. And so it makes sense to eat junk and to trash your soil. But then if you think of it in the long term, if you have a lower time preference, which I think is what Bitcoin does to you, then clearly you're going to start to have different ideas about land and you're going to want to maintain the land into the long run. And I think it's quite amazing how many uh, Bitcoiners are into this kind of stuff, how many Bitcoiners want to buy ranches and let the cows loose. It also seems to fit with liberal people, kind-hearted, say one thing and act as if they feel one thing, but everything that they say is actually the opposite. Like, for instance, what you're saying about the fields really being killing fields and all the people who want to spare animals <laughs> are <laughs> because they want to spare cattle or whatever. So they think that agriculture is a good idea. There's this, this flip in the thinking, including the fact that the soil gets depleted and it just fits with the whole paradigm, it seems to me, the liberal paradigm that it seems like whatever they say it's always the opposite whatever they say. You can be sure that the opposite is what is really actually true. And it, yeah. it, it applies here as well. It seems to me. Yeah. I think the underlying mechanism, the more that I think about it is that fiat world prioritizes high time preference, short term thinking, and there's always this trade-off in life between the short term and the long term. You enjoy yourself now, you pay the cost later, or you work hard now and you benefit later. That's That trade-off always exists. And so if you think in terms of the long term, you're going to see that fiat always has the wrong answer because fiat is prioritizing the short term and therefore compromising and sacrificing the long term on everything. This is why basically this, I think, might be the underlying mechanism for why once you start putting on the Bitcoin tinted glasses, the world just uh, stops making sense or the world starts making sense and, and the lies of the old world stop making sense. Yeah. In the chat, Boris is asking how many square meters are required by a cow. And he's saying China does not have 1 billion acres of land. Browning is saying it's about an acre per cow. China does not have a billion acres of land. The world has, I think, 37 billion acres of land. So we're good. We've got room for another 37. We've got room for another 30 billion people, if that's the metric. But of course, I think people uh, underestimate uh, just how much of the world's land is useful for cultivating animals. Because when these estimates are made, they'll look at agricultural land. And that's true. Agricultural land is limited in terms of the places where you can have these combine harvesters run and rape the soil, you need flat surfaces. And so you can only have industrial agriculture predominantly in flat surfaces. And so mountains and rocky surfaces are not considered agricultural land because they can't produce crops, but they can feed cows and particularly goats and lambs. Goats in particular are just complete badasses. They don't care. They will climb any rock a mountain in search for tiny little shrubs. So there's an enormous amount of land all over the world where cows can roam. We don't have a shortage of land for cows. And if people would quit eating the junk, using enormous amounts of land, 
for the production of essentially poisonous junk. If that land gets repurposed into producing actual food, red meat and ruminant animals, it would also make so much more. We don't have a carrying capacity problem in the production of meat. We have a misallocation of resources problem wherein we're wasting so much of our land and destroying the land in order to produce garbage, basically, that is killing us and poisoning us. Anybody have any further thoughts on this? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Well, just that an attitude of moral and spiritual superiority seems to go along with the, those who think this is a bad idea. So that's suspect right there. Yeah. So there's about five, four point nine hectares of land used for agriculture. How many hectares in an acre? I think it's about two point four. I think one acre is zero point four hectare. So yeah, two point four. So about five hectares is about two billion acres. Two billion acres is just the agricultural land. So there's a lot more land that can be used for grazing all kinds of other animals. For example, in the Amazon, they talk about forests being cut down for cattle. But actually, the forest is cut down for soy production. After the soy is harvested, the cattle can walk through the leftover plant materials that remain in the field. That happens throughout the United States, too, where they can eat what's ever left on the, in the fields from the corn, from the soil. So cows have an ability to transform foods that humans actually cannot eat. That's Ruminants can do that. Yeah, this is an amazing aspect of the stupid propaganda against meat, that when they're calculating the supposed carbon footprint of meat, they calculate an enormous amount of the carbon footprint of the cattle feed that uh, goes into the cattle 
But of course, the majority of cattle feed is not eaten by cattle. Uh, it's eaten by humans. The majority, what, what, what cows eat is the leftovers. That stuff is heavily subsidized by governments all over the world. And the subsidies are what drive its production and drive its inclusion in the diet of people all over the world. And the leftovers are fed to cows, but then all of these anti-meat activists will then attribute enormous chunks of the land and the cost and the environmental damage. It's amazing to see that when they talk about the, the destruction of cattle habitat, they just assume that the soy that is really destroying the Amazon and destroying the Midwest and destroying all over the world and uh, all the forests are being destroyed by these horrible crops. They just assume that it's all for the cattle and therefore it's all the fault of meat. But in fact, the only reason it's uh, produced is because of the subsidies and the reason that it is given to the cattle is because it is so dirt cheap. If you didn't have so much subsidies, it would be far cheaper to just let the cattle go and graze in uh, grassland. The whole thing needs advocates along the lines of Alex Epstein, the work yeah, that he yeah. does. It, it needs that kind of spearheading this information. Yeah, there's quite a whole bunch of people who do this. Um, one guy is uh, Alan Savory, and he runs the Savory Institute. And they do regenerative agriculture all over the world, basically. They teach local farmers all over the world. In many cases, it's not even teaching them. It's reminding them of what their grandparents used to do and figuring out how to adapt to the local environment best in the local crops. But yeah, a lot of the regeneration and the reforestation that's happening being driven by cattle grazing and the production of meat. And this has got enormous potential in the future. Savory's story of how he participated in slaughtering all those elephants, trying to stop desertification is pretty powerful. When you listen to him personally tell that story, if that doesn't get your attention, then nothing else. Yeah, it's a very fascinating story. And there's a TED Talk by him on this. And I think his TED Talk was uh, canceled or, or there was like a warning by the TED people that, that this talk will give you bad feelings and bad thoughts and you shouldn't uh, listen to it. So <laughs> you should definitely check it out, I think. Yeah, and so apparently their idea was that all these big animals are going to eat the soil and destroy the soil and ruin it. And the way we fix it is by killing all these animals. So they slaughtered all these animals. And then uh, they were surprised to find out that, oh, we didn't uh, make things better. Whoops. He learned this lesson and spent his life trying to fix that. It's pretty inspiring because you think, basically he says deserts are man-made. Deserts have been man-made through many centuries and yeah. um, a millennia of agriculture. We're constantly depleting the soil and then the depletion of the soil leads to uh, when the soil is depleted and it doesn't have nutrients, it's not uh, moist, it won't absorb water. So when the rainfall uh, comes, the rainfall collects on top of the soil, a little of it is absorbed, and then it starts evaporating. So when that happens, the soil can't hold a lot of water uh, and the sky won't get a lot of evaporation from the soil. And so then basically that leads to the reduction in rain. And so what Savory argues, which kind of drives the fiatters insane, is that when you start grazing cattle on the land, the land becomes richer and then the land can, can absorb more water. And then when it can absorb more water, the water cycle around the region begins to change. So more water is embodied in the land and in the crops and in the grass and in the trees in there. 
and then more water is uh, evaporated when it gets hot and then more rain happens and then you shift the geography of the place desert uh, deserts being deserts is apparently not destiny it's a hugely exciting and amazing way to think of the world and it's in uh, the chapter in, of the fiat st- uh, standard on fiat food I, there's a contrast between this kind of vision of the future versus what the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture was doing in the 1970s. The great film about it is called King Corn, and it's about this man called Earl Butts, who was the Department of Secretary of Agriculture in the Nixon administration. And Nixon told him, basically, we need to make sure that food prices don't go up. And his motto was, go big or go home. The idea was through financing, they were going to consolidate farmers into big farms so that there'd be massive economies of scale, so that you could use the most modern equipment and you could invest in it. And it was the industrialization of food production. And the impact has been the destruction of the soil and the destruction of the health of people. It's been 50 years of this shit right now. And... You have to be completely insane to argue that uh, it's unrelated to the destruction of the soil and the destruction of health. Like, obviously, a lot of people will because a lot of people are essentially more interested in just uh, uh, posturing and maintaining their beliefs rather than actually uh, figuring out what's actually going on. But it's undeniable. You look at trends in obesity and in uh, diabetes and in heart disease and in all kinds of illnesses, and it all takes off after the 1970s. Not a coincidence. Also, of course, the diet guidelines, of course, helped, played a big role in that. And ethanol. <laughs> oh, yeah, and then the ethanol. That's, that's going to be the topic of the chapter on fiat fuels, which is coming in the next few weeks. That's a great use of farmland. Yeah, insane. It's absolutely insane. It's amazing to think that how wasteful it is to grow crops, to then turn it into ethanol, to then put it into a car and burn it. It's amazing. The the amount of land that is being wasted for this. And then people, imagine people worrying about, we don't have enough land for cows, but we have enough land (laughs) to grow corn and burn it in cars. And now apparently they're trying to make jet fuel from biofuels, which is just... Absolutely insane. And of course, one other side effect of the ethanol is that it wears down cars. Mm -hmm. In fact, some car enthusiasts will tell you that the reason that cars are becoming so short-lived is because the ethanol mandates means that you have to include ethanol in your fuel. That's why it's a fiat fuel. It's not something that people would include in the market. So you put it in your fuel and then it wears down your car on top of the fact that it's massively expensive. It ends up ruining your car. So it's contributing to the whole high time preference of high consumption culture because we're having to put this highly useless fuel, which is enormously expensive and enormously agriculturally destructive into the cars because it's good for the environment. And so it's destroying cars and slowly leading to people going through their cars much quicker. And it's making car makers design cars for a shorter uh, period because the, there's little point in building a car that lasts long if uh, the engine is going to be worn down by all the ethanol. 
Kiki is saying she's watching Daniel Jurgen's Commanding Heights now. Uh, she finished watching Jurgen's uh, Commanding Heights and now she's watching his oil series, The Prize. It's so interesting. I've not seen that. I've seen Commanding Heights, but I've not seen The Prize. I should check it out, I guess. All right. Well, thank you very much, guys, for joining. And I will see you in our next seminar next week. Take care. Thanks.